You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Episode 32 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the relationship between sex and holiness. Specifically, we're discussing a blog post, Sex Belongs to Believers, by John Piper, and the address, The Body's Grace, by Rowan Williams, which are linked uh, in the show notes. And I should reiterate, too, that as always, the views expressed by the panelists in the Christian Feminist Podcast are their own and not necessarily the views of every member of the podcast or any institutions they may work for. I'm Marie Haas, a regular panelist moderating today's episode, and with me today are returning guest panelists, Diana Anderson and Nate Craddock. Hello, Diana and Nate. Hi. Howdy, howdy. So let's introduce ourselves for any listeners new to the program. Uh, I'll go first. I'm Marie Haas again, one of the regular panelists here, and uh, I'm a PhD candidate at Florida State University, still finishing my dissertation on Renaissance poetry. Hopefully it'll be done soon. Um, I'm excited to do another episode with Nate and Diana. They were previously a guest panelist in episode 22 on incarnational theology and body studies. Uh, Diana, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Diana. I'm calling in today from Oxford, England, where I'm doing my master's in women's studies. Um, I'm the author of Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity, and I'm originally from South Dakota. Thanks, Diana. And Nate, what about you? Hey there, I'm Nate Craddock. I am calling in from Woodbridge, Virginia, uh, where I am a treatment foster caseworker, as well as uh, discerning a call to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church. Uh, I have a Master of Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary, and I dropped out of a PhD program in historical musicology from the University of Kentucky. Um, yeah, I'm <laughs> just excited to be here again. <laughs> okay, thanks, Diana and Nate. Um, so to get started with our knowing section of the episode today, I thought, uh, Diana, since you can tell from your book topic that you know a lot about this area, you could introduce this topic of sex and holiness for us and um, say, why is this something worth talking about? Um, well, sex is something that most everybody experiences at some point in their lives, and a lot of our cultural discussions are surrounding around sex, so the church needs to be able to address it in some form. I mean, it's this giant cultural thing, and if we don't talk about it, it's like avoiding the elephant in the room. And there's a lot to be said about the importance of embodiment. I mean, we're not existing as disembodied souls just flitting about like ghosts, um, and sex is an area where we see that embodiment and that importance of physicality most fully and most starkly. 
And so discussing what holiness means in this context is really important for understanding what it means to exist as embodied, uh, possibly sexual beings. And, so, um, and traditionally, evangelical Christianity has ignored the sort of embodiment aspect and gone for a very uh, strict, um, you know, it's only for marriage, it's only for this, and we only talk about it in these certain contexts um, sort of attitude, which um, is problematic because it compartmentalizes sex and it compartmentalizes um, the importance of embodiment and, as Rowan Williams says, the perception of the other. Um, and so, so that, that's why it's it's important to talk about this topic today. Thanks, Diana. Um, Nate, do you have any comments about why the topic is important or uh, topics uh, bleh, comments about the topic in general? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that it's an important discussion to have again, as Diana said, because it has so much, uh, it has so much cultural saturation, I would say, because I mean, really human existence, those things that drive us are those kind of lower brain parts of things, food and sex and sleep and shelter and safety. Like those are, are, of human existence that wherever we are, whatever's going on, whatever cultural milieu we're in, those are going to be common elements of our humanity. And I think that, um, two, sexuality, just a activities or behaviors, sexuality is a means of interfacing with the world. Um, it's a means of how we interact with other people, whether or not they're sexual partners, whether or not uh, we have a sexual attraction to them. It's, it's in my experience, and this is kind of a theory I'm teasing out and trying to, um, trying to field test on my own is that, is this idea of like sexuality being like, Oh, okay. This is how I interface with other people and not just, this is how, um, I attend to my sexual needs, my needs for connection. The other thing, too, is this idea of connection between sexuality and holiness. Rather, uh, sex positivity and holiness, like there's a holy way to be sex positive or there's a sex positive way to to be holy. <laughs> that, that sounds a little pretentious, but um, to, to do some of that work and talking about that as I was preparing for this recording, I could not find anything <laughs> or, or any extended work that people have done in sex positive holiness. Whereas that's something in my personal process, in my personal journey, I've tried been trying to figure out and see how that fits into my life. So, um, I, th yeah, yeah, there's just, just there's so many different directions we could go in this conversation. I think it's definitely worth spending the time speaking about. Oh, thanks, Nate. And I mean, I agree with both of you on what you're saying about the importance of the topic. And Nate, I like what you're saying about the the idea of sex and sexuality is this broader sort of means of the, the way you interface with the world. Um, so of course sexuality uh, and that sort of interfacing with the world isn't just limited specifically to sexual activity, but it's a, a broader topic. 
So, and in the interest of full transparency, since I'm in this episode talking about this topic, I think I should say I'm not myself sexually active, though I'm sure I will be at some point. Um, so I'm not speaking from personal experience regarding sexual activity as I give my thoughts on sex and holiness, but um, definitely from this broader view of um, sexuality. And also on the importance of the topic, uh, I'd add, I think it's an important topic because uh, it's one where it's so easy to get into this bad theology that can creep in and, and just shatter people's lives. And um, in, in the Why, Conf uh, Why Christian Conference uh, back in September that uh, Victoria, Kristen, and I discussed in episode 27, there was this one presentation that stood out to me by uh, Dr. Nicole Flores. And it, stu it stood out to me because of the way she talked about bad theology as this kind of evil in itself. Um, and she was talking in her speech specifically about intersections of race and nationalism and gender and these religious attitudes towards human trafficking and exploitation and all that sort of topic. But one, one thing she said was the denial of the theological primacy of human dignity is its own heresy. Um, and I think that this too really easily applies to some of the bad theology that can come up in relation to sex and holiness um, can get this perhaps misplaced emphasis on sexual purity that can end up denying the theological primacy of human dignity by reducing people, women especially often, but also men, um, to their sexual activity, and it can then deny a person's worth. And additionally, um, the idea of sex and holiness is often, of course, tied up with this heteronormative view of sex, um, not only would any sex outside of marriage be seen as unholy, but also any sex not between one man and one woman. And of course that can contribute theologically to denying the worth of queer people. And um, that's one of the problems I think with our first reading. So let's move on to the reading section of the episode. The first reading we're talking about is a blog post by the prolific Christian author, John Piper who was for many years a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, and who's now a chancellor, the chancellor at uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. So I'll talk more about the sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly of the post in a minute, but let me summarize it first so we have uh, what, the basis of what we're looking at here. So the post is titled, Sex Belongs to Believers, and it comes from September of last year, on Piper's website, www.desiringgod.org. And in it, Piper, one thing that Piper's doing is countering the idea that sex is inherently evil. Um, he claims that sex in heterosexual marriage is a holy gift from God. And he starts off by citing 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, where Paul argues against the, the people who are claiming the um, necessity of an ascetic diet and who rejected marriage. So in verse 3, Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So going off of this, Piper says, 
The sex of marriage and the pleasures of food are made holy, that is, they are set apart from the sinful use of the world, made pure and precious and beautiful by participation in the goodness of God. And then he goes on to explain how uh, we shouldn't be embarrassed by Bibles or frank celebrations of sensuality. Um, he uses examples specifically from Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. In reference to Proverbs 5, 18 through 21, which says to rejoice in the wife of your youth and let her breasts fill you with delight. Uh, Piper says that sex and heterosexual marriage is designed by God to inspire us to worship God. So let me quote this <laughs> section of this discussion of, the, of this passage from Proverbs. Piper says, we're not meant to revel in his creation instead of him or more than in him, but because of him and because there's something of him in all that is good and beautiful. The heavens are telling the glory of God. We are to see it and worship him. So it is with the breasts of our wives. The breasts are telling the glory of God, the goodness of God, the beauty of God, and more. We are to see it and worship him. So then, going on uh, to Song of Solomon, Piper argues that the sensuality and the sort of graphic depictions of sex in the song contribute to the image of the relationship between Christ and the church from Ephesians 5:22 to 23. Piper says the point of the song is to, it says, ensure that we take seriously the exquisite physical pleasures between a bride and a groom as a picture of Christ and his church. Um, he doesn't really explain how these physical pleasures actually relate to that picture, though, beyond that they're covenant-keeping pleasures, which I think... Uh, is important to his point about this being within, again, heterosexual marriage. So following these examples of sex from the Bible, then P Piper's final section makes a claim that sex is for Christians. And not only that sex is, uh, open, like Christians should be open to sex within heterosexual marriage, um, but also that uh, sex is not for anyone who is not a Christian. Sex belongs to God, he says. And if it's used by those who do not believe and know the truth, it is prostituted. They have exchanged the glory of God for images. Um, Piper says, paraphrasing Romans 1, they have torn sex from its God-appointed place in the orbit of marriage. But they do not know what they are doing, and the price they will pay in this life and the next is incalculable. Uh, so then after this sort of menacing statement, uh, Piper concludes by reiterating that the ultimate purpose of sex is to add to our worship of God. The pleasures of sex, he says, um, are themselves an overflow of God's own goodness. This pleasure is less than what we will know fully in him at his right hand. And in it, we taste something of his very exquisiteness. So either in union or in abstinence, Piper in sex is always an occasion to show that the giver of sex is better than sex. Um, so that's the summary of the blog post. And um, obviously, I think, I think there's both good and bad things about it. So first, some of the good things. Um, there, are, there are definitely some positive things here, I think, beyond the specific topic that this post has. Um, I kind of like Piper's overall sort of trademark emphasis on taking joy in God. That emphasis on joy is, that can be a lovely thing, I think. And God is a God of joy and love and not punishment and hatred. Um, 
And I think in this post, Piper's general emphasis on the joy of God uh, comes out in his idea that sex uh, in heterosexual marriage allows us to experience a joy that's a part of the joy that we take in God, um, which has some problems in some ways that we'll get to in a minute. But in other ways, it's good that this this is a positive view of the experience of sexual pleasure. And that's, I think, the second main thing that's good here, that Piper wants to treat sex as positive rather than inherently negative or sinful. And also that he wants Christians to be able to talk openly about sex, um, at least in relation to heterosexual marriage. And this is sort of like what we talked about in episode 22 in reference to Pope John Paul II's body theology, I think, that this is positive in its effort to allow Christians to integrate more fully the body and the soul, creating a more positive view of embodiment, like Diana was talking about earlier in the episode, Uh, one that counters this long sort of religious and philosophical tradition that separates the mind from the body or the spirit from the body and sees the body as inherently evil and lesser, um, just this kind of meat suit um, occupied by a spiritual ghost. So this more open discussion of the positive nature of sex, which Piper seems to be going for, um, could help to counter that sort of uh, denigration of the body and embodiment. So that's, that's good, I think. But um, also like we looked at uh, with the, that body theology, um, there are a couple problems here. Uh, One of the same problems is that the situations in which sex can be considered holy and uh, the stark contrast between holy and unholy sex in this Piper piece um, create this sort of very limited view of sexual holiness. Um, Piper, of course, limits holy sex exclusively to sex between a married man and woman, both of whom are Christian. And, of course, obviously this excludes a lot of people. Um, Among them, those who are in same-sex relationships, even uh, marriage relationships. And it also, of course, follows the traditional rejection of sex outside of marriage, um, which is a theological stricture that's traditionally uh, fallen most heavily on women due to uh, sexual double standards, but it definitely affects men as well and can produce a great deal of shame for both women and men and can work to devalue women and men who are sexually active outside of heterosexual marriage. So I think um, it could be an example in that way of the denial of the theological primacy of human dignity. Of course, I should point out that from Piper's point of view, uh, he'd probably say that sexual purity is the only way to actually fully value the human individual and preserve human dignity. But that standpoint on sexual activity, I think, can produce a great deal of harm. And Piper himself has said elsewhere, bad theology will eventually hurt people and dishonor God in proportion to its badness, and that that evidence of this theology hurting people is um, what's led people like you, Diana, to uh, explore the ways in which this is bad theology. 
and also something we'll talk about more in a minute here, so I won't spend a lot of time on it right now, is uh, the fact that this, this limited view of sexual holiness excludes any non-Christians and really sort of contributes to denying their human dignity as well. Um, there's a second problem, or maybe just an area of discomfort that I wanted to mention too, with Piper's descriptions of the purpose of sex. Um, he has this focus on sex as a means of worship, but the way he describes it just feels slightly creepy to me. I don't know if I'm reading into it the wrong way, but it sort of sounds like God as this kind of cosmic peeping Tom looking down and saying, oh yes, worship me, humans, through the glory of sex. Go, go! Um, or, or maybe it's this kind of divine freeway uh, where the human's focus are, is supposed to be on God, which is just a little weird. And it's also just even slightly more creepy for me, given the focus throughout on specifically the male point of view in this imagined uh, male-female marriage relationship, like with the discussion of the breasts in Proverbs 5. And with God being gendered male throughout the post, this sort of gives the impression that a human woman is kind of othered in this divine freeway. And uh, with sex being treated as a means of worshiping God by taking joy in his creation, this kind of implicitly puts the woman in the position of the created object, uh, basically a tool for worship. The point is to worship God through her body, um, which seems sort of like a static thing, like this stars and separable into single parts like the breast. And this objectification of the female body is only sort of latent in the post, I think, and not plainly stated. It's probably not Piper's intention, but um, it still sort of feels a little off to me there. But I'm not saying with that that sex is not a way of accessing the joy of creation that's ultimately a joy in God in a form of worship. I mean, in terms of the sacramental ordinary, I don't think there's any reason why why that shouldn't be. And um, I'd be completely on board with seeing sex as a form of worship in terms of it belonging to this category of the sacramental ordinary, confined holiness in, in sex, um, and that with this idea that sex can be a holy experience and even one that strengthens a person's connection with God and the goodness of God's creation. I think that's fine. But um, I'm just, I'm not convinced that any sexual experience that does not produce a kind of transcend, transcendent vision of God's holiness would then be wrong or bad. Um, and on this, there was a post that was linked on Diana's blog at some point. I was trying to find it earlier today and I couldn't think where it was. So sorry to that poster of, the, of this um, blog uh, piece that I don't have your name so I can credit you. But in this post, um, the person who was, I think, a woman with a male partner was writing that sex might not always be an overwhelming mystical experience, and that's okay. Um, she wrote that she and her partner might sometimes just have sex for fun or to alleviate worry or because they're angry about something that happened at work or whatever reason. So it might not always be a sacred experience, and it might not always be the same level of experience, and there could be many motivations for sex. Um, and something about that post stuck with me, though obviously not the author's name, sorry about that, but because it sort of pointed out for me 
the extent to which this purity culture view of sex is just a game that you really can't possibly win because even within a heterosexual marriage, then you are prostituting sex, to use Piper's language, um, if it doesn't produce this worship experience of God's glory. And um, I think we should face it that that's just not going to be either the purpose or experience of sex every single time in any relationship, though it could be sometimes. Um, so in purity culture, then everybody's going to fall short of the glory of sex. Uh, and it goes back then to that distrust of the body, that view of sex as actually inherently impure, at least as it's actually practiced in real life by real people. Now, again, Piper's not explicitly saying this in his post, but I think it sort of follows from what he says. So those are a couple problems I have with Piper's piece despite some of its positive aspects. And there's a third major problem that I mentioned earlier that's central to the post and indicated in its title, uh, Sex Belongs to Believers. This elitism and the idea that sex is only truly practiced uh, the right, holy, pure way by Christians, and that any other people having sex is inherently evil. Um, but I think that uh, Diana and Nate probably have something to say about that topic, um, as well as uh, your other responses to Piper's post. So, um, Diana, what was your response to the blog post? I wrote so many notes in the margins of, the, of this post while I was reading it, um, mainly of this doesn't make sense unless you already buy his premise that sex is for marriage and that sex is for Christian marriage and that sex is for heterosexual Christian marriage. So there's a lot of preaching to the choir that happens here, particularly when it gets to the point where it's meant for believers. It feels like, to me, uh, sort of like he's patting himself on the back, like, yay, we got this good thing for us and everything, and all those heathens out there don't know how to do it right, which is a um, sort of emblematic attitude uh, in evangelicalism and in, and in sort of fundamental Christianity of we've figured out how to do this thing right and it's the and the way we're doing it is the only godly way and so we can now use it to condemn anybody outside of this small circle that we've drawn and that's a big thing that he's doing in this post by saying that sex belongs only to believers and that anybody who is not a christian believer particularly anybody who's not a believer in his specific form of reformed christianity is therefore um, not practicing sex in the in the proper form, which is just it, it goes against the idea that God created sex because like if God created sex only for the elect to practice it, it's kind of that that kind of sucks for everybody else, um, <laughs> especially for people whom God also created to be gay or bisexual or transgender and, and stuff and. And I come from a position where I firmly believe that God created us to have those different sexualities, uh, whatever that may mean in the in the eschatological framework. Um, and so for um, Piper to narrow it down and to draw this line in the sand about where sex belongs and what sex means, it mm, it's kind of bragging almost about how how good Christians have it. And that's something that I don't uh, 
really like <laughs> at all. I, I, I mean, that's a major that's a major problem because it's basically preaching to the choir and helping people to say, yes, we are the ones who are doing it right, you know, and all those other heathens have gotten it wrong um, and stuff, which is when you when you start doing that as a Christian, that's really problematic. So. Yeah, just give me give me a sort of bad feeling with the post with the uh, mm-hmm. we Christians have it all. It's it's sort of like the uh, pastors talking about their hot wives kind of. Well, it's different, but it's related. <laughs> yeah, a smoking hot wife. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nate, what was your response to Piper's post? Sarah, I'm Piper. That is, I, I wish we everyone kept their mics on for reaction noises. I just realized <laughs> I was probably going to get the, the desired chuckle. Um, yeah, so this is a propaganda puff piece uh, that relies on a lot of a priori assertions, as Diana and Maria both pointed out. Like, if you don't buy Piper's line or, or his base argument that like sex is sex is for married people, specifically married heterosexual Christian people. If you're not on board with that, then this article is not going to convert you. I don't know what he's trying to do here. Um, and like we raised two, like God in, in John Piper's conception <laughs> seems to have really poor boundaries. Like, I, I feel like John Piper's God is way too involved with my sex life. <laughs> um, it, and yeah, there's just this huge issue of <sighs> there's this huge issue of uh, the way that John Piper understands each partner's role in in the sexual relationship. And I get that he's a complementarian. We all know that. Um, but I think that the way his complementarianism unfolds again, like Marie said, like this is this is about the man using the woman as an object. And the woman's purpose is to glorify God by being that thing which the man can conquer, can own, can use as a drug, can use as a as a source of pleasure instead of honoring the woman's own God-given sexuality, the woman's own God-given experiences. This has not John's line of argument has nothing to do with the woman's perspective here. And that's really problematic if sex is supposed to be mutual and consensual between covenanted adults. This And knowing John Piper's theological background, there are two things here that I think he's also missing. Like, if sex is supposed to be between a man and wife who are covenanted together, um there's or at least in my estimate there should be a mutual enjoyment of it the woman should be able to take as much in her husband as her husband takes in her um of course that is all heteronormative and 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 we're we're just going to roll with it 
Um, so I see that as being an issue. And I think also in terms of sex being for believers, the tradition of John Calvin has this idea of common grace that there's a particular grace that's for the elect, but there's also a common grace of God that is for everyone. Um, and it seems like Piper has just kind of taken this idea of common grace and thrown that out the window. Well, if you're not a believer, if you're not a part of the elect, you don't get to experience any of the good things that God has gifted us with. Okay. So if sex is, is only for believers, what else is only for believers? Is wisdom only for believers? Is science only for believers? Is good health only for believers? Is medical care only for believers? Is joy only for believers? And I I have a really huge theological beef with any conception of God that restricts God's care for all of his creation <laughs> because if all of God's creation is supposed to be taking joy and delight in God even if they are outside the elect even if they as John Piper would say are reprobate they should have access to the same common grace um, because a God who withholds common grace a God who withholds those good things for all of his creatures is not really, I think, worthy of <laughs> worthy of paying any attention to. Because that God's kind of a jerk. And yeah, I just uh, <laughs> this this I found this article so frustrating. And the, the other thing too is Full disclosure, I have been actively trying to avoid uh, some of John Piper's writing because I do find it so frustrating to read. Uh, but I think, I, again, I'll just echo and affirm what Marie and Diana have already raised that are their critiques of this article, too. Um, <laughs> and having spent time with it, I'm kind of ready to move on from it. Can I just add one more little thing. Um, sure. As far as the image of what Piper's God is, I think a good like analogy, at least with this piece in context, is like the 15-year-old boy who is, you know, very interested in sex and wants to and wants to watch it, and oh, is, like yeah. not quite mature enough to understand <laughs> what's going on. And yeah. that's sort of the image I get of God in Piper's piece. He's like sneaking downstairs when his parents are asleep and turning the channel to the scrambled porn channel. Yes. <laughs> and okay, well, we can move on from Piper though. Like, <laughs> okay. Um, now, uh, although I like what you're pointing out, Nate, about the, the lack of um, consent, sort of mutual mutuality and consent um, in. Piper's descriptions, and I think that's something that we get a kind of correction to in this piece by Rowan Williams, um, 
The piece is called Our Bodies, uh, The Body's Grace, excuse me, um, and it can be found in the anthology Ourselves, Our Souls, and Bodies, edited by Charles Heffling. Uh, but we've also got an online version of it linked in the show notes. So, Nate, let's take us away from Piper and get into some Williams here. Yeah. Um, yeah, wow. This article, this this presentation, Um this was a talk that was given to the lesbian and gay Christian movement, which was an organization within the Church of England. Um, I believe it was the Church of England, or it might have been interdenominational. Um, that was one of the major voices for LGBTQ inclusion within the Church of England. And Rowan Williams, long before he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, gave this talk in 1989. So now we're nine. 30 or well not quite 30 years out from it and this just has remained so fresh um and i also preface by saying just go read this article <laughs> my summary will not do it justice um so i'm going to hit a couple of the highlights um william starts out by asking why does sex matter and he's asking that within the greater context of why should the experiences of LGBT people in the church be listened to? Uh, and I, I see what he's doing here as being this very diplomatic. Okay, well, let's, let's look at the things that are really around us. And this is one of the strengths of this article. Sorry, I'm not going in exact show note order. <laughs> I'm talking about the strengths and weaknesses at, at the same point. Um, one of the strengths of this article is that it's observational. It's not, this is my party line. This is what I believe. This is what I'm going to defend. And in this way, Williams is really letting his scholarly side show. He's saying, okay, here's something we can think about. Let's think about it. So he asks, why does sex matter? <clears throat> and then he gives little bit of a summary from the Raj Quartet, which is a, um, <clears throat> a four-book series by Paul Scott. And there is a character, um, after a tentative sexual experience, uh, it goes like this. When she is at last coaxed into bed, as they enact a tenderness that is not really that of lovers, Sarah comes to herself. Hours later... On the train journey back to her family, she looks in the mirror and sees that she had entered her body's grace. Continuing on, somehow she has been aware of what it was and was not. A frontier has been passed, and that has been and remains grace, a being present, even though this can mean knowing that the graced body is now more than ever a source of vulnerability. Williams argues essentially that grace for the Christian believer is a transformation that depends in large part on knowing yourself to be seen in a certain way as significant as wanted. And so this idea of the body's grace is that the body experiences its desire as a component of the human person. It, it, it experiences its grace by being desired, by being honored, by being as, by being significant and wanted. And Williams goes, goes on to say, you know, we are 
we as humans are made so that we can be caught up in the desire of God. And it's interesting thinking about um, this, this just popped into my head, the contrast between John Piper's whole impetus behind his ministry is that we are made to desire God. Rose Williams is coming up and saying, what about God desiring us? And how does God desiring us play out in our lived embodied experience? The body's grace itself only makes human sense if we have a language of grace in the first place. This in turn depends on having a language of creation and redemption. To be formed in our humanity by the loving delight of another is an experience whose contours we can identify most clearly and hopefully if we have also learned or are learning about being the object of the causeless loving delight of God, being the object of God's love for God through incorporation into the community of God's spirit and the taking on of the identity as God's child. For the body to experience grace, for for the body to understand that it is good, that it is wanted, that it is valuable, much parallels our human experience of God saying that God wants us, God values us, God desires us. And it is in this really vulnerable space of sexual interaction or sexuality, qua-sexuality, that gives us it's, it's in that space that we best experience um, what desire is, what it is to be desired. When we are desired, that ignites us, that, that, that kind of fans us into flame in a way that simply be to, being told, oh, yeah, you're, you're loved and valued. That it, it, does, it does more than that. It's a visceral embodied experience of that. Um. Williams also goes on to connect this back to the question of the experiences of lesbian and gay people. Um, Saying that essentially they exist outside the realm of religiously and socially sanctioned sexual relationships. Um, And so they have to ask harder questions. They have to, in some ways, find their own way to experience desire. If the church is not saying, if society is not saying, oh yeah, this is what you should do, this is what needs to happen, and then like you can do the sex and everything will be great. Um, he, he's offering this idea of sexual desire of as being a locus where um, even if it's outside the bounds of convention, even if it's outside the bounds of what is quote unquote socially acceptable or sanctioned by the church, um, that can for the people who are experiencing being desired, be a place where they are experiencing grace and having this encounter, uh, with a gracious, desirous God. Um, <clears throat> And he also calls out uh, in, in 
in, in short order, he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but he also picks apart some of the arguments for um, defending heterosexual married sex as uh, as normative as being the right thing. He picks apart some of the arguments from scripture that people make um, using this great example from John Boswell who raises up um, Samuel. Samuel's father says to his wife, who is sterile and heartbroken because she does not produce children, am I not more to you than ten children? And he goes on to note that the same holds for the New Testament, which is, (laughs) I love this quote, is notably non-biological in its emphasis. Um, Paul's strong words in 1 Corinthians 7 more about partners in marriage surrendering the individual ownership of their bodies carry a more remarkable revaluation of sexuality than anything else in the Christian scriptures. Um, and for all and, and the use of marital imagery for Christ and the church in Ephesians 5, for all its blatant assumption of male authority, still insists on the relational and personally creative element in the metaphor. In loving his wife, a man loves himself, for no one ever hated his own body. Um, <laughs> saying he, he raises that in essence to say that if, if we're going to raise up a normative sexual ethic of procreative heterosexual sex then you're going to have to do a lot more to to pull that out of the Bible because the Bible holds both in it um and if we if we look at scripture as being a continually progressive, continually opening up of realizations of revelations uh, about human existence, there was the procreative thing <laughs> earlier on in the in, in the text as it was forming earlier on in the canon that was as it was forming, but as human experience progressed, as scripture was being written down and recorded, and these stories were being passed down there really became this deeper and deeper realization that sex is not just about creating more employees for the family farm. Um, Sex really is this unifying thing. Sex really is, and this is something, um, this is something that I resonate deeply, deeply with. Sex is this area where there is a locus of grace, where there's a locus of blessing. And that's something that I've, incorporated into my own theology about sex, my own understanding of it. And it's, it's so cool, really extraordinary, um, to, to think about, (laughs) to think about the relationship between sex and God as not being, you know, God's watching you, (laughs) um, or like you're only doing this because God wants you to take joy in it and glorify him through it. But rather, God gives humanity sexual desire and sexual experience in order for humanity to experience what it is to be desired and to know viscerally what it is um, to be wanted, to be valued, and to beckon humanity into a space of vulnerability um, where it takes courage to be uh, vulnerable with another person in that way, and it, 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 it I'm. <laughs> this is my personal opinion, but I think it. I think 
sexuality is healthier when there is that element of vulnerability, when there is that element of, I trust this person with my life. I trust this person enough to let them know me in this intimate, intimate way. Um, and I am privileging them with that. I'm privileging them with my body's own grace, my my body's own experience of desire. Now, the major critique I would raise about this article is that it insists on a mind-body dualism. Um, if we go back to the embodiment episode, uh, it's my whole spiel is that we don't have a body. We're not just minds wearing meat suits, which Marie said at the beginning of this episode. We're, we're not disconnected from our body in that way. Our body is part of our whole human experience, and we don't exist as humans without bodies. Uh, certainly our memories and our, our stories and our consciousnesses perhaps can exist without bodies, but the full human experience is lived in a body. And some of the ways that um, Williams gets to his point, it's almost as kind of like enforcing that mind-body split. Like your mind has this experience of grace. Your mind, your soul has this experience of being desired by God. Now your body has to get on board with that. <laughs> and I, I find that really not altogether problematic, but it is something that, depending on one's anthropology, can be a cause for concern. Um, but on the whole, I this article is, I think, groundbreaking um, in taking the conversation about human sexuality out of the realm of, well, does it does it square with what the Bible? says with what the bible quote-unquote clearly says about human sexuality and instead makes it about this is an experience that humans have what can it tell us about god what can our lived human experience tell us about existence and bodies what can it tell us about um <laughs> what can it tell us about grace instead of this is this, and, and you have to conform in order to be pleasing to God. Yeah, thanks for that sort of synopsis and examination of the of this address. Um, it's, yeah, definitely, like you say, everybody should go and read this. Um, and I really like that quote that you read at the beginning uh, when you started talking about how grace is a about grace being a transformation that depends in large part on knowing yourself to be seen in a certain way as significant and as wanted. Um, like, like you're saying, Nate, I think that's really one of the strengths of this piece, um, that Williams sees the body's grace and, and sex as having to do with human beings seeing themselves as desired and as the occasion of joy, he says. So sort of, in connection and contrast with Piper, uh, joy is important here again. But it's it's this joy that's rooted in being really seen and known by another human being, rather than in worshiping God by using another human being's body. Um, and Williams is still relating that joy 
uh, that joy of being known and being desired to a divine relationship. Uh, he compares it to the perichoresis of the Trinity, um, but he's really more focused overall, like you pointed out, on this value of the human individual, um, which he seems to acknowledge more than Piper's piece does. It's interesting that um, it's partly William's idea that he says that God made us for joy and that non-functional joy, the phrase he uses to contrast in contrast with a procreationist aim of sex, is a part of the body's grace. And it's this idea of non-functional joy that forms a part of his argument in favor of same-sex relationships, because joy can then be this product of sex in any sort of combination of genders, not just within heterosexual marriage. Um, and like I said earlier, I like, too, what, what Williams says about uh, mutuality, that the body's grace requires time for this mutual recognition that my partner and I are not simply passive instruments to each other. Um, so that's sort of a contrast with Piper. And uh, throughout, we have Williams emphasizing this strongly egalitarian model of sexual activity and sexual relationships, um, where those knowing each other and being known are fully equal. Um, in addition to Nate's point about the duality between mind and body, there were just like a couple other things that seemed oh, slightly off. Like just at the beginning, Williams says, um, most people know that sexual intimacy is quite simply the place where they begin to be taught whatever maturity they have. And so I was like, well, Oh, too bad for me. Uh, because I think I think it's possible for people who are not sexually active, like me, um, or for asexual people who are really a sort of often excluded from being mentioned even in conversations about sex and holiness, um, to have you know as much maturity as anyone else. Um, so that seemed like a little bit of like low-level shaming for a lack of sexual activity, which you would see fairly commonly in secular culture, but not necessarily as often in Christian religious writings. But that's just a small point. Um, but also, like, even though, um, Nate, you pointed out how Williams extends this, this idea of the body's grace beyond the church, still some of his language seems, like reading this right after Piper, it sort of seemed slightly similar in this idea that we can only truly understand the body's grace if we first have the understanding of what it's a creation and redemption, this Christian understanding of theological grace, um, which I think is not, not definitely not the same level of elitism as we get in Piper, but I don't know, seemed somewhat related. I'm not really sure what to do with that. I don't know, Diana. What what were your responses to uh, to Williams? I really liked the Williams article, um, and so I thought there were point there were points where I wrote, mm, I don't know if I really um, agree with that. Like his um, inclusion of uh, like his reliance on Susan Griffin as a, a feminist anti porn activist and stuff. There's a there's another question to be had there, and that's way too far to go into right now. Uh, in terms of his impression of porn, and we have to keep in mind he's writing in, in 1989 um, for this, but that's a totally different uh, thing. Um, but the fact that he even engages with those kinds of questions is really important, I think, and that's something that, uh, again, to contrast it with Piper, it, it totally gets ignored other than 
turning um, culture into this heathen behemoth that we're against um, and stuff. The fact that he incorporates uh, critiques and understandings of feminist discussions that are that were happening at the time in 1989. I mean, this was a huge time period for the feminist movement. Um, I'm going to get a little women's studies here. Um, and stuff where there was a lot of like second wave feminism was was sort of coming to a close, and there was this whole backlash in the eighties about um, working women and the and responses to the sexual revolution, and we were having this rise in the AIDS crisis, and um, a lot of queer theory was evolving at this time and stuff. And um, so for for Williams to be engaging in that in that sort of discussion within this piece is um, just fantastic to see because you don't often see um, pastors doing that. And, so, and particularly, I want to draw attention to the section um, where he says that um, the, that the, uh, the male gaze in particular is an uh, important dehumanizing aspect of um, current sexual encounters that, that um, I'll, I'll just read what he says. I have suggested that the presence or absence of the body's grace has a good deal to do with matters other than small-scale personal. It's often been said, especially by feminist writers, that the making of the body into a distant and dangerous object to be either subdued or placated with rapid gratification is the root of sexual oppression. If my body isn't me, then the desire and perception of my body is bound up with an area simply of danger and foreignness, and I act towards whatever involves me in desiring and being desired with fear and hostility. Man fears and subdues women, and, the argument continues, this licenses and grounds a whole range of processes that are about the control of the strange, the nature, the foreign, or the unknowable future. future. Um, and the fact that he's connecting this... Um, I don't want to say brokenness, because there's a whole lot of things that go in with the line of brokenness, but... Um, this objectification that happens within the inability to perceive each other as uh, as human beings and stuff, and connecting that back to misogyny um, is really important. I think that highlights just precisely what's wrong with Piper's argument in terms of the woman being a passive object, being unable to experience pleasure, only giving pleasure for the man. Um, and you can use Williams here to highlight exactly why that's wrong, because the, the man who um, desires and fears the woman as an, as an object um, is not fully engaging with her and is therefore hurting both himself and her in um, this objectification. That's the root of uh, misogynistic thinking. And I think that's a really important thing to highlight. And I was I uh, was really excited to see that and to see that he was engaging with that in 1989, which was not um, not very common then. And it certainly wouldn't be common now for for um, a lot of pastors to engage with what current feminists are saying. Yeah, good points, Dan. And, you know, like you say, this the debate over pornography is this, of course, a huge feminist debate and we don't have time to talk, get into that here, but maybe we should have a, have an episode sometime about that feminist debate over pornography. But yeah, definitely lots of good stuff with uh, Williams. And um, again, go read that, everybody. That's linked on the show notes. Yes, please do. <laughs> and, 
Um, so, oh, and also, is it, we've been talking throughout the episode about uh, queer inclusion and how Williams works towards that and Piper doesn't. I should have mentioned earlier on that. Again, yes, we are an all-queer lineup with uh, uh, Diana and myself being bisexual and Nate being gay. So, yay, again, all-queer. So, <laughs> for, for those who did not see the, hear the earlier episode. Um but okay, uh, before we go on to the final segment of the episode, then where we give our recommendations, um, Diana, do you have any last comments on the topic of sex and holiness? One thing that I think needs to be stressed within this discussion before any um, discussion of holiness can be um, even begun is the importance and primacy of consent within these things. Piper doesn't even really address it, and Williams kind of does, but doesn't really quite get there in his uh, theology. And so I, I just want to restress that it's very important to talk about um, the, that when we're talking about sex, that we're talking about consensual sex that's mutually pleasurable for both people, and it's, and it's um, given with full and enthusiastic consent, because holiness can't even enter into something that's not consensual. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess one thing, one last comment I would have is that, okay, I chose these two readings because they seem to go well together, offer a kind of different, <laughs> different points of view. Um, but I realized afterwards then that they are, as so often happens, both by white men. And of course, the, this topic of sex and holiness is, you know, it extends to people beyond white men. Um, so it, it would be good to uh, read things, of course, by women, non-binary people, by people of color, etc. Um, and I think it, it would be great if we could come back to this topic again and so at some point um, perhaps have another episode with some discussion of readings uh, by non-white men kind of readings going on and uh, some discussion about how race and, and class too um, come into play in these theological approaches to sex and holiness. So that's just my final thought here. Um, Nate, what are, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, um, just <laughs> it's so hard to find writing on sex and holiness that's not purity culture propaganda. I mean, really, if if you Google sex positive holiness, as I did, <laughs> like five minutes before we started recording this episode, um, if you do that, you're not going to be able to find any kind of really scholarly discussion. And it just goes to show that the 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 popular, I guess, discourse is still kind of rooted in this, like, holy sexuality is saving it for heterosexual marriage. Okay. Get, like, how? And so it's really a, a question of, like, what do we do to start moving the popular discourse beyond that? And I get that that kind of ideology is really deeply entrenched in a lot of church cultures um, and in a lot of religious cultures in general um and just within western culture um at, at, with sex is this kind of thing that is like risque and shameful and uh we're not having the conversations or at least not that i'm seeing so maybe not generalize as much i'm not seeing the conversation happening about what does holy sexuality that a 
confirms sex as a good thing without getting mired down in the baggage of purity culture. Where is that conversation happening? How do we start it? And what are some of the positives that can come out of having that conversation? Maybe one of them is freedom from shame and guilt. (laughs) And that relates to my my, uh, passing on recommendation. Okay, well, why don't we just go on to that segment then and you can go first. Sure. Um, Yeah, so I have recently become a Brene Brown fanboy. If one has not read any of her work on shame, um, one would do well to do that. She has a TED Talk about vulnerability, and she also has, um, of course, Daring Greatly. Uh, which is all about the courage to be vulnerable. And I think that dials back to some of the things I was talking about when in my ramble about, uh, about Williams' talk. Sex and vulnerability are intertwined. It, like, it, it, it's just how it is. Consensual, healthy sex is about being vulnerable with a person. And vulnerability is perhaps something that we can take out of that context, out of the context of sex and apply it to other areas of our life. Um, And so Brene Brown just has this phenomenal take on vulnerability. And that is, is something that I personally am still piecing through in my own process. Um, So I would recommend Daring Greatly. I would recommend her Ted talk as well. Sounds like a great recommendation. I'm going to definitely check that out. I keep seeing um, quotes from it on Facebook and uh, Tumblr that are just going by. <laughs> so <laughs> something I should see and read. Um, okay, so my recommendation, uh, well, I guess don't want to be too sort of nepotistic in the episode or something, but one on-topic reading would, of course, be Diana's book, which she mentioned, um, Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity, released last February. Um, So you should check that out, and um, you can also hear her talk about it in my interview with her about the book in episode 26 of Christian Humanist Profiles, which is another podcast in the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, And I also think that uh, um, there's another book that's sort of slightly less on topic for this speci- specific topic, but related to what we've been talking about, and it's worth recommending and um, worth recommending again if I've recommended it before, which I think I might have. Um, that book is James V. Brownson's Bible, Gender, Sexuality, um, which, with a good deal of scholarship and theological depth, argues that same-sex relationships can be just as holy as opposite-sex relationships and should be treated as such by the church. Um, Of course, as is often the case in works arguing for LGBT inclusion in the church in this way, the book is sort of otherwise fairly traditional when it comes to the theological attitude towards sex, so basically that it should only occur within marriage. but it's it's a very valuable book, I think, when it comes to countering the exclusion of queer people from the church. Um, so those are my two recommendations. And Diana, what are yours? 
I have a few. Uh, first is a person that uh, you should probably follow uh, on Twitter. She does a lot of um, work with, uh, she, uh, it's my friend Sarah Moon. She, uh, she tweets at Grumpy Theology. Um, and she does, she's in seminary right now, and she tweets a lot about her research in terms of, like, God and gender and sexuality, and she's one of the, the best thinkers on this topic, and she's somebody I'm always bouncing ideas off of. So she's worth following. As far as books, um, they're, like Nate said, there's not a whole lot on sex and holiness that doesn't follow the purity culture range, but um, All About Love by Bell Hooks is worth reading. Uh, and Asking for It by Kate Harding uh, are both really good um, discussions of uh, first, the, the first one's really good discussions about the nature of love and the importance of love within um, social justice movements and everything. And asking for it is a really good examination of what feminists call rape culture and stuff. And it can help. Um, I I recommend it to people who are having trouble understanding um, all these myths that we tell about rape and about um, consent and about um, how sex works on a um, just like logical level um, ends up. Uh, so those are my uh, two book recommendations on that front. Thanks, Diana. And thank you both of you again for joining the, the podcast again for this episode. It's great to uh, have you back. And thank thanks. you for us. Oh, thanks yes. for having us. Yeah. We'll need to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and thank you, listeners, for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. And for show notes for this episode and other episodes, you can check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network. Kristen, Kristen, excuse me, Philippic is our publishing liaison, and Sway Jimenez is our intern. So for Diana Anderson and Nate Craddock, I'm Marie Haas, and tune in next time for an episode on a classic feminist novel, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.